You are listening to Curious Cat, the podcast that examines the shadowy space where science and the supernatural collide. And I'm your host, Jennifer Holtz. Join me every week as I examine what it means to be a soul in a meat suit. Welcome to Curious Cat. Today, I have a special guest. Dr. Sugg is an accomplished author with 13 books whose works have appeared in The Guardian, BBC History, Der Spiegel, and The New Yorker. Welcome to the show, Dr. Sugg. Many thanks. It's great to be talking. Seems like a perfect fit. Oh, it feels like a perfect fit, too. So we were introduced to one another through the fabulous Karen Runtowski, and she's she said you're interested in the paranormal, but she called you a skeptic, which I thought was kind of curious. So have you had any recent experiences that you would feel comfortable sharing here with the audience? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah, I um, I haven't had a huge number of personal experiences to me. But in fact, funnily enough, um, looking back over my life, I I realized something odd that happened to me when I was about uh, 10, 11, probably was a friendly poltergeist. And this was uh, shortly after the death of my great-grandmother, who had a grand old life. She lived to be 100, almost 101. And we all went up to see her for the 100th birthday. It was quite a big deal. This was from the south of England to the north, quite a long way. And, yeah, she was... uh, photograph with us and I suppose you know when she died we must have been reasonably fresh in her memory because my brother and I my cousin <sighs> all were there with her and yeah she's had what we in England call a good innings no question and off she went anyway wow. it was a few months later I think I'm so long going now weeks months perhaps but as a child I always had a rigorously systematic knowledge of how much money I had which was almost none uh, and never enough to buy chocolate uh, so <laughs> I had a school blazer, which had quite a lot of pockets uh, inside and out. And at some point, I suddenly started finding coins in pockets of the blazer that simply shouldn't be there. I, you know, I knew down to the five pence or less, you buy a suite in those days for one pence, uh, how much money mm-hmm. I had. And these coins were appearing. I, I, you know, I had no framework for it. I had no way of understanding it at the time. And you can get used to good luck quicker than to bad. It, it didn't go on for a terribly long time. <laughs> But it was many, many years later, after 2013, really, when I got into the subject of poltergeist, purely by accident. Uh, so, yeah, I would have been a, a thorough skeptic until that point uh, that yeah. I, I read about poltergeist giving people presents. Um, and, <sighs> yeah, there was a guy in, uh, I think it was Hungary, he was a lawyer, and I think it was uh, Carrington who talked about him. He actually just asked for things when he was broke. And on demand, he would get bottles of schnapps uh, and cigars <laughs> and all sorts of things. Um, my fairy, fairies <laughs> of dangerous history, covers poltergeists and ghosts a little bit. And there is a famously haunted house in Newcastle, near Newcastle, uh, near where I used to work in Durham, in fact, called Denton Hall. And 
Denton Hall was occupied by a couple of elderly sisters at one point, and they were quite happy with what they called a brownie, certain type of friendly fairy who does little jobs yes. and leaves things. Right, used to yeah. leave them little bunches of flowers, apparently, and um, make up the fire for them, I think. Anyway, they were quite happy with this. But when they moved out, um, uh, a family came and they had a son, a young son. This is often trouble with poltergeists. And, yeah, yeah they, they had such a hammering noise in the son's bedroom that they simply moved out. They gave up trying to live there. And it was obviously a very grand house. And it's, he's had a record as a haunted house, whether you call it ghost, uh, poltergeist, yeah. or, you know, fairies, brownies. For a long, long time. So, yeah, that uh, that was an early experience. But you know, back in my wow. childhood and teens, I was I was thoroughly atheistic, and I, I wouldn't call myself anything religious now. Uh, yeah, certainly not Christian. But but um, yeah, the the earliest big event of my life, really at nineteen, was my father dying, and we got uh. no warning. Really, um, it was a series of heart attacks in a few days. And, oh my gosh! And this was this was a big event. It's one of those events where you're still kind of always back there, and you're still always replaying it. Mm-hmm. Um, and you you never quite accept it, I suppose. No. Um, and mm-hmm. and nobody could convince me at the time um, that he wasn't simply gone; that he was simply only in our heads anymore, and that was it. Yeah. And uh, it was it was a very very long time before i could change my mind but funnily enough perhaps we can talk about this i had a, a story yeah. a very detailed story given to me just a few weeks or months i think it would have been after that which was kind of pointing the way to poltergeist but i simply had no framework for understanding it, it at the time you weren't exactly i've i've i recently had that kind of experience where you just weren't ready to receive that information until this journey that you were about to take with your father passing away, which uh, I'm so sorry for your loss, by the way. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's so interesting. Well, um, so tell us more. So did you have any visitations from your father? Because we have that in common is, uh, you know, my father didn't pass away. He passed away recently. I'm in my 50s, but um, it's heartbreaking. I don't know if you would be more receptive to it at 19. You were atheistic, but would you have even been open if he had done something super overt? Would you have even been in a place where you had have would have observed it and seen it for what it was question it's a good question because um you know the 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 christian church that i had experience of at that time was very alienating so that didn't really help oh yeah he had come back in some way and i think probably i'll 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 come to this uh uh, perhaps at the toward the close of this discussion but something happened with my mother certainly which was quite undeniable and remarkable Mm -hmm. and was a very neat little uh, apt goodbye a week after she died uh, ah. if my father had done that then yes i think it it, it would have made a difference it would have been a struggle to grasp mm-hmm. it because i didn't really know what the word poltergeist was but mm-hmm. as i say it was a few months later actually that my um tutor a guy called mike very kind of hard-headed yeah. very lovable guy but very practical with his mm-hmm. hands and so forth mm-hmm. to make anything uh from a Meccano robot to a grandfather clock, uh, etc. Wow. And he was a guy we you know, we all trusted. Anything he told us, we we believed. And he taught us sociology for A level at St. Albans College, uh, which is a great part mm-hmm. of my life. And he 
always had a knack of knowing when we were really sort of fed up with any more sociology. You simply sort of switch and tell us a story from his past. And this great fund of stories. If you want to read them, his, his memoirs are out now, War Baby and the sequel to War Baby. Oh, Terrific fun and great. God, that sounds bit. great. Yeah, remembers everything to um, age three during World War Two, you know, and his oh. kind of comic evacuation period. Uh, oh, my Oh my gosh! Wait, that I'll put the links to it in the show notes for the terrific. listeners because that it's that great, sounds great fantastic. Um, both his books, yeah. and yeah, so he told us the first ever poltergeist story I heard. Told his whole class, and just to briefly give the kind of key points of it, it went on for a long time. He and his um, young fiance, then wife, who. I'll give her a different name. Let's call her Jane. Um, They went into a derelict house at one point in St. Albans, and they just picked up some old wood. There's notice saying he could do that. She immediately wanted to get out, didn't like it at all. He thought it was maybe a little bit grim. Anyway, funnily enough, uh, whether there's karma in this or not, I don't know, they ended up buying (laughs) the new house that was built on the site. Uh, And this, to me, was later on, I suppose, a lesson in haunted houses you knock it down doesn't make any difference so it doesn't they got a poltergeist very quickly he was he was on his own in the house typically with mike he'd made his own bed as it were literally he made a pallet bed very heavy thing uh, and he was lying yeah. on this in the house on his own uh jane wasn't around and suddenly he was flipped out of bed now he's a pretty big guy oh my gosh so i think you know the bed was flipped over it was a very heavy thing um he just yeah thought, scratched his head and yeah, what the hell's going on got back into <laughs> bed and did it again and again um so this was the start of a poltergeist incident that did seem to revolve around jane who was slightly highly strung um and it wow. went on four months um books would be held out of the bookcase um sometimes just <laughs> one exact book and nothing else would hit him on the shoulder uh, open at pages discussing the paranormal he was sat on his <sighs> own one day reading um the newspaper on a rainy afternoon and he suddenly noticed that a photograph of him and jane uh, i think it was a wedding picture by this time had been turned exactly upside down so he frowned he goes over he turns it back again uh and next thing you know, it's upside down again. And as with so many poltergeist cases, uh, the, yeah. the famous or infamous demand for a photograph of this flying across the room is very, very hard to get. It's very hard to yeah. get them to play ball to Absolutely. see it actually happening. Um, so he's, right. he's actually playing peekaboo. He's pretending to read his paper, but actually looking over the top. <laughs> it, it, it happens about nine times. I, I can't quite remember, but, you know, something like that. He never once sees it happening. Later on, a kind of heavy... Um, X is etched across the uh, picture, which would later be um, echoed in horrible ways for Keith Linder with you in Seattle. Um, yeah. And, yeah, stranger and stranger things happen. I mean, some of it's mind-blowing to people who don't know this area. Some people just shrug and say, sure. But at certain points, in very, mm-hmm. very small house, really just two up, two down, he would come in uh from work she would be there jane first and she would call he would call and then he goes around the house and he can't find her um and it's a tiny house. wow nowhere to hide she presently admits to him yeah i disappear i haven't got any control over it sometimes it happens um the children <sighs> uh, as they were born and, and grew into infancy would be moved around uh upstairs but completely unharmed and unwoken in fact you know lying in there 
in their cribs. So that was the first story I ever got. And that was really, to me, an experience that I think helps me understand how somebody now completely cold to this might feel, yeah. which is that it makes your head hurt. And it's the first time yeah. really in adulthood that you you have information that you cannot put in the yes or the no box. Um, some yes. people are more like that than others. Some people are more happy with sort of blurred categories. Um, but I think left brain particularly, and I've, you know, I've been left brain for my career, really, by necessity for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, left brain people don't like, you know, things without hard edges and categories. And it, it was odd um, for the next, what would it have been? That was 1990, roughly. So uh, 23 years. I, you know, I couldn't put that in a yes or a no box. I couldn't believe it or disbelieve it because it was Mike. It was yeah. possible, but it was Mike. So, yeah, that was a, an early experience. So you- you he was he was valid he was credible to you you knew he wasn't lying he wasn't making this stuff up it was so your your brain was just that's because we're i think we're hardwired for duality from birth and so it's yeah. like it's good or bad yeah. dark or light and so right. it can exist and yeah. it's interesting because you were saying at the beginning that you're definitely not christian well i i i'm doing a deep dive this uh, relates into angels for uh my next episode. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because I wanted to see what the Catholic Church had to say about um, Mm -hmm. Gabriel. And they have right at the top of their website, you know, do not uh, look to angels, don't worship angels, don't ask angels for anything. And I'm like, okay, anybody that has comfort from that let angels intercede. How dare you, Catholic Church? And I kind of flipped off the computer and went to a different yeah, website. I mean, there's, a but, of, um, there's a lot of paintings and a lot of churches are going to have to whitewash over if that's their new policy. Uh, right. Yeah. So your your brain was hardwired not to believe it. And then it's like, um, and if you're left-brained anyway, um, it's really interesting that that's the case. I I had some things happen to me younger, and okay. I kind of knew that they were yeah. serious, you know, they were definitely ghosts, but I you knew if I told any adult that they wouldn't believe me. Right. But it's interesting because when you were saying about the paranormal, uh, but poltergeist in particular, yeah, in particular, um, when my daughter, my youngest, and I don't like to tell their stories because they're their lives, they're grown sure. now. Yeah. But um, when they were in their um, that middle school age, so that kind of we call it in America the tweenness, like uh, ten to okay. twelve. Yeah, um, she was getting all sorts of stuff happening to her in her room. She'd be alone. Things would be thrown. Things would be knocked on. um, And she kind of freaked herself out. So she closed off that part of herself. And then when she kind of grew out of it, she told us what had been happening. And I did. That's when I did all this research about yeah, it's it's girls in that age, um, you know, before they've hit um, uh, usually puberty that are really a magnet for this energy. And um, so we were able to look back on it and go, we knew you were like powerful and you are a magnetic kind of spirit. But that was my first experience directly with the poltergeist. Was it the same house where you'd experienced ghosts, the same house? No, brand new. It's just like you said that it was um, the construction doesn't matter. The newness of a house doesn't matter. And um, so it was a brand new house and you know, so there's no explanation. We had actually, um, you know, the house um, that sat there that we renovated had no um, sort of activity that I could sense because I, I can sense some yeah. things. I, you know, I've 
I poo-poo it, but I have sensed things a lot. Yeah. And so, but it was, so it, I think it was definitely something drawn to her. So then I love to go to cemeteries. My daughters and I spelunk around every cemetery whenever we're traveling yeah. here in the Seattle area. And so I learned how to protect us after that. It was like I needed to protect our energy because they felt like they were vulnerable um, and they were magnets, both of them, yeah. you know, so. Yeah, it, it, yeah. It's, it's debatable, I think, how much the 19th century poltergeists and girls was a function of the fact that unfortunately, you know, young oh, girls true. have a much harder time yeah. then. So if you're going to be, yeah. you're more likely you, you're 13, 14, you're pulled out of your family or a servant in an alienating class conscious household, it's, you know, but it still seems to such be a good point. Yeah. That's an excellent point, Dr. Sugg. Mm -hmm. I hadn't even thought about it through that lens. It took me a while, but I'm reading yeah. so many cases, you know, in the 19th century newspapers of some poor girl that, I mean, A, Unfortunately, if you look at the sexual history of the period, the odds of her being abused by, you know, a man of the household yeah. were very, very high. Mm -hmm. um, but B, yeah. if then something's happening, that servant bells are all being rung, they're even being rung when they've cut the wires, things are being thrown wow. around. Of course, poltergeists steal things, you know, um, yeah. you depended on your reference, and yeah. your character, and you were finished without it. But not only could you be dismissed, but you, you could be threatened with jail. And this was the case with one girl who was blamed for all this. And she obviously wasn't doing it. She's the focus of it. Worse than that, perhaps, you could you could be tagged as a witch, you know, down to the end of the 19th century yeah. for these hammering noises mm -hmm. on a house in Rutland where they, they threatened to knock the house down. <laughs> uh, it was so oh, my gosh. So, yeah, so I, I think also the question now lingers on is, you know, are women slightly more psychic than men? Um I went in. Right. I read I you you sent me um before we spoke, you sent me yeah. this article and I'll put the links in the show notes as well for the listeners. It was with the Daily Mail and I was wondering, I wanted to ask you about that. Um what what is, in the article, I don't want to be a spoiler alert, but yeah. um what was your finding? Did you feel well, like the, women were more psychic? The, yeah, it ranges from everything to the sense of being stared at to seeing a ghost that no <laughs> one else can see. I at the mm -hmm. moment, I'd like to frame it as an open question. And the, the Daily Mail has a big readership. It has a big um, mm -hmm. history of getting responses to things about premonitions and so on. So it's actually a way of doing some research. Uh, yeah. Opinions of women I've spoken to vary. I mean, Linda Williamson, who's quite a classic um, ghost hunter, would say, yeah, women are more psychic than men. Some women say... Well, men have these experiences, but they just explain them away. They explain them mm -hmm. in inverted commas logically. And, you know, a lot of words mm -hmm. are used around the paranormal. The paranormal is not illogical. It's not irrational. It requires different frameworks of logic and reason. But, yeah, when we go to pubs, a friend and I can see him on uh, Friday. If you want an excellent collection of essays um, where you get so mm -hmm. much in just a few pages, Mark Twain foreseeing his brother's death, um, a pilot right. who has a ghost in his plane as he flies across Scotland and England wow. uh, on the anniversary of that ghost's death, uh, and so on. Robert yeah. Charman's um, telepathy, clairvoyance, and precognition is terrific. And we've been going to pubs and asking them about ghosts for quite a long time. And yeah. in one pub, you'll ask pretty much the same question to the female staff, and they'll tell you all sorts of stories which they're about poltergeists and they're not the sort of things they'd know about if they weren't having them happen, you know. Then you'll ask them out yeah. stuff and they'll sort of scowl and shake their heads and look uncomfortable and say, oh, I don't go for that. Um, it varies, it varies, you know, but but that's yeah. a broad split with these things. Um, 
So, well, uh, yeah, I, it, so I have to, but I have, I, I'm kind of wondering because, you know, you blew my mind with the um, talking about poltergeists and, you know, us thinking it was more females, but then looking back at history, um, that may not be the case. I wonder even in um, the case of the paranormal, if we're just getting into a place where men are able to actually in real time, like acknowledge their feelings, their emotions. And so that was stuff that they put, they didn't even register until it was on maybe a level nine or 10 in the past. And so maybe yeah. that field will be, a, the the playing field will be a little more equal in, I, as we move forward. I, I think that's right. You know, one thing that struck me about writing this book at the moment we need to talk about ghosts is that it's an odd yeah. one because with the kind of excellent work that's being done in non-fiction around minority voices minority experiences you yeah. kind of could call people suffering poltergeist or simply experiencing a ghost in a friendly way in a, actually a positive mm-hmm. way you could call them a minority uh, because of the misrepresentation of the whole subject whereby wikipedia mm-hmm. has been just made an absolute mess of by a very strange group of people i mean they're they're not scientists they have no scientific training and they actually behave like the most stiffly religious uh arrogant christians of the 16th or 17th century this is our religion for you to question it is heresy whatever you say we will always find a way to uh make people disbelieve it um, so that, that doesn't are help. they editing are they editing your page no, what are they doing every single entry on wikipedia <sighs> on um the paranormal and in fact they 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 own up to this a group called the gorilla skeptics says you know we edit wikipedia entries to improve their skeptical content i mean they don't know what the word skeptical means it means to look out <laughs> they don't and they do not right now um but no the point is they don't edit them they write the whole thing as far as i can tell so i mean if you had a you know if you had a set oh my of God. um articles on racism all written by white supremacists that was kind of how you could parallel it. It's, it's an absolute mess yeah with you know devious it, looking oh my gosh. people need to put their names to these things and I agree. Well, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned that about the Wikipedia page, because I like to go into um, Eastern medicine, alternative medicines, and I've been finding that there's a lot of solutions to some mental health uh, health issues that don't involve medication, right? And I'll I'll start doing a deep dive into natural medicine and these universities in the Seattle area and across the United States Mm -hmm. that are doing this more natural homeopathic homeopathic medicine and they they like offer degrees in that and their wikipedia pages are just Mm. like you're saying they are complete mess that you have these and you go into the edits and it's like a little civil war in the edit you know somebody will add something somebody will take away something and it's the same group of people and i did a deep dive and i'm like why are these people bent on changing this. And I found this one doctor who seems to have a wife that died, um, uh, you know, early in her life. Yeah. And it's like, I think that he attributes it maybe to naturopathic medicine. I don't want to put words in his mouth, mm-hmm. but it seems like he has uh, created a group that's going after anything mm-hmm. that isn't Western medicine. Mm-hmm. So, I wonder if there's something like that behind this guerrilla skeptic group. Something frame of mind. Yeah, I mean, each case has to be taken on its case by case basis. I think, but perhaps another thing we get to talk about the whole healing thing because, again, Robert Charles got some incredible data on healing of 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 cancer by 
you know, what would seem like completely non-scientific methods, but but they've been peer-reviewed and checked out and gone through all the statistical, et cetera, time and again. Um, yeah, and certainly I think Qi, uh, the, you know, the Chinese mm-hmm. or uh, yes. Eastern energy source, it looks like a good candidate for the stuff that's going on with poltergeist. I mean, you know, I'd love to know. I'd love there to be a discipline in universities of poltergeist science. There should be. You know, I how can something throw a 250-pound wardrobe time and again across mm-hmm. the hallway, which happened to poor old Keith Linda many times? Uh, how can it start <sighs> fires that defy every law of uh of physics Romania as as you know states yeah. by veterans uh of 20 40 years investigation <laughs> uh, this is a big one because uh in 1980s early 1980s it was 82 it kicked off a scottish woman called carol compton fell in love with an italian man uh went off as his fiance to italy worked as a nanny to support herself while they were waiting to be married. And she was almost certainly the focus for a fire poltergeist. So the nightmare of this is is hard to make up, but this happened. She she went to three different locations, two different families, fires broke out around her, uh, and she was accused of starting them. She was accused of trying to murder babies. Uh, so this woman had the word witch being flung at her. She was in prison for 18 months. She could be kept, you know, for a long time without trial. And this was all over the papers in Britain and the world. Uh, her mother lost two jobs in Scotland as a result of this witchcraft stuff flying around. And in the end, she was acquitted uh, in terms, she was released from prison, but she was found guilty and let out because she served 18 months. She had a criminal record for something she almost certainly hadn't done. And she faced years in prison. And two investigators stated, I've never seen a fire like this in 20, in 40 years investigation. It burned down, not up. There were no traces of flammable liquids. It was not caused by a cigarette. It was not caused by the wiring. Uh, and, you know, unfortunately, even wow. Carol didn't understand when people like uh, Guy Playfair, you know, the famous investigator of Enfield, pitched in and said, mm-hmm. look, we'll, we'll speak for you. She just thought this was more witchcraft stuff flying around. So she wasn't going to have the poltergeist explanation given. So, yeah, poltergeists in court uh, and poltergeists, you know, on the fringes of science, I think more and more needs to be known about it. But I think Chi, mm-hmm. when you hear stories about, Chinese or uh, Buddhist practitioners, real experts, mm-hmm. you know, chi masters. Um, yeah, you hear credible stories about somebody of five foot two um, pointing his finger at some kind of you know American football type guy and flinging him against a <laughs> wall. Now that that's yeah. oddly consistent with throwing a two hundred and fifty pound wardrobe uh, across a hallway. You know, some force is doing that and it it behaves mm-hmm. in consistent ways. It demonstrates its own physics and it, mm-hmm. it's been seen all over the world down to this century. So yeah, mm-hmm. I think you know the real science I- is waiting to be done. I, I agree. I, there's a, um, I don't know if you're familiar with him, but he's a high magician in the United States. He had been um, on death row uh, wrongly accused. His name is Dave Damien Eccles. And he talks, he, um, he he's, um, you know, he looks at all different types of magic that have come down through the centuries and he makes it palpable and, um, you know, accessible for people. And he, when he was in, um, in um, isolation, in uh, prison, yeah. he just 
he took his prison cell and made it his Buddhist temple, per se. And he learned how to um, take everything that was just in that stark room and make it work for him. And he used angels and angel magic. He used the, um, you know, celestial and the earthly energy. Um, and he didn't say this, but I saw it when he describes it as um, the human body as a battery of sorts, where the top of your head connects to celestial energy, yeah. the base of your feet connects to earthly. And he, um, you know, he has these teachings where you create this golden ball of energy, and you can use it to protect you, you can use it to give healing to someone even far away. And um, it is really powerful stuff. And it is very much in the the flavor of chi. He talks about mm. chi as well. And um, it is really intriguing. But I find that all the things that human beings can use to kind of um, uh, capture and um, like harness their power and use their power is often poo-pooed by all these big institutions, right? Because it threatens their power. It threatens their, their money uh, that comes into them. They need us to dependent on them so i find it really interesting too that concept of chi because i I feel it there's a lot to be learned if they Mm -hmm. listen and i i think it will break through eventually i mean one of the most amazing books i've read recently is uh, a neurosurgeon american neurosurgeon book's been out for a while now but even alexander's proof of heaven and you don't need to believe in a christian uh, or a muslim heaven i think to, no. to get this book Mm-mm. if you know a little bit about out of body experiences he effectively yeah. had a, a, an epic out of body experience because he was in a severe coma with a, a form of meningitis from which he wasn't expected to recover and as a neurosurgeon he and everyone around him knew that his neocortex had shut down so he simply should have been just functioning pretty much like a vegetable he he should not have been capable of any consciousness but he had this seven day experience which operated on a different level of time but it was seven days that he was lying there on life support to the point where they were about to give him up and he simply came back and he told this story and it's not an easy one to grasp if you if you haven't read any out-of-body experiences but if you've read a few of those i have that's probably what he's talking about and the whole business with angels i mean the catholic church has got that wrong as unfortunately a lot of religion Mm -hmm. gets a lot of this subject wrong and they don't really help people when they need the help he uh Yeah. yeah he saw beings who would would add up as angels and this is the case of robert monroe you know a lifetime of or half a lifetime of out of body experiences you can see where this angel thing comes from but i think we always need to keep an open mind where that project's going to lead us it's it's monroe i think has been the kind of epic voyager uh in in that series of strange lands but alexander's book isn't breathtakingly good story um told kind of across a lifetime and then crushed into one week you know uh and he goes back to the beginning of his beginning of his uh i don't know 20s or something like that and realizes that he had an experience which yeah it it couldn't have happened in ordinary physical terms and he understands it from the point of view of uh of these other dimensions uh by the end of that so yeah that's um that's an example of somebody who's ready to accept this. And he's, you know, he just knows that a lot of his colleagues cannot really grasp what he's saying. But you're exactly. not going to shake, shake his certainty about that. And he is backed up by, you know, a lot of other out-of-body narratives. He is. Exactly. Well, and I've been... Um, I- 
out-of-body experience, near-death experiences, it's really interesting. I've been doing a deep dive on those and how they parallel the studies that they've been doing, even across the lake for me at the Paul Allen, um, you know, they have a brain study um, institution there, uh, neurosciences, and they've been looking at psilocybin and um, the impact of that on um, people long-term. And um, there's a friend of mine whose husband just, you know, um, he is in remission from cancer. He definitely thought he was going to die at multiple points if he didn't respond to the treatment very quickly. And there's a PTSD that's involved with, um, you know, if you even survive that cancer, you still have this residual PTSD. So the Paul Allen Institute is just, um, you know, walking in the footsteps of John Hopkins University, and they're doing these microdosing of psilocybin. And people are reporting the similar, it's like a life hack. You're getting this near-death experience clarity to your life and also um, the smallness of what death actually means and the largeness of what the soul means. And so he's going to be a part of that study starting in um, next month, but um, it'll be really interesting of it. They're finding that it's really helping people with their PTSD, with their anxiety, and with their depression. So... um, I don't know. I'd love to I've been diving that. deep yeah, into it. I'd love to talk more yeah. about it because, I'll, well, perhaps after Christmas, my Christmas, one of my Christmas presents is a book by a guy called Christopher Batch. And he, as a tremendous pioneer, uh, for 20 years, he took very high doses of LSD in secret and had, yeah, the kind of experiences I think. Yeah. I'm, I'm talking about summary of the book at the moment, but that uh, yeah. even Alexander had and Monroe had. So the psilocybin, yeah. would, it would add up from the, you know, it's a little I know about that, but. But yeah. Right. Yeah. It's very interesting stuff. And it was just legalized in Col- the state of Colorado um, in the last election to try in That's a therapeutic good. sense. Good. So it'll be really interesting to see. So wait, I have to tell people you are you talked about it. You're working on a brand new book. And I wanted to hear more about that. And we cannot forget to talk about your amazing new podcast. Can we talk about that first, though? Because oh, I've been deep yeah. diving into your new podcast podcast. And it's very much like the college course that I wish I had taken at the university. It's like knowing a secret class and and slipping into a a secret lecture hall with the coolest professor ever. So thank you you for what you're doing. I mean, I hope other people feel like that. You know, I lectured at universities for a long time and I enjoyed it tremendously, but it does limit what you can do in terms of range. Uh, historic range I'm sure it range a little bit mm-hmm. so uh, I found it liberating to be to be outside of that in some ways but I yeah I you know I taught for such a long time I, I missed the teaching a bit and I, I think this format is very flexible you can really just pick you know 15 minutes half an hour uh, you, can, right. you can pick subjects from all over your research things you've published on things you haven't published yet and mm-hmm. yeah it, it's dark histories from the secret university in the sense that I, I do hope it offers about the best you could get from one person in terms of a, a university course in terms of range but in terms of things that are dark and being overlooked forgotten uh buried away mm-hmm. now uh, so it can be stuff on the paranormal it can be something like mm-hmm. history of the great unwashed you know this is a phrase everybody knows mm-hmm. but when did it come about oh, yeah. how was it used why was it proliferating in the 19th Mm -hmm. century and so on and yeah i'll be putting out some fiction and i'll be putting out uh, works that are out of copyright john muir is someone i love 
great oh, hero yeah. of ecology in Scotland. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm at the moment doing some ghost stories because that's traditional for Christmas. So mm-hmm. I love that. Oh, I can't wait. I I've just been binging it as I run on the treadmill. I've just been yeah. binging it, and I loved the cat episode. Just it, it yeah. was just fantastic to hear about the seven cat stories. Yeah. And you must do you do it as like a YouTube as well? Because you were talking about you have um, a heckler. You were saying there's hecklers. I can't get to the seventh story, and yeah. they don't stop. It was adorable. So yeah, thanks. I should even that. I like YouTube. I've got out the habit. Yeah, but um, yeah, yeah. Well, no, the book. Um, thank, thanks for mentioning that i i for a long time i've got so many stories so much data on ghosts and poltergeists i don't really know where to start Mm -hmm. and it suddenly hit me over the summer um that it's really a memoir actually it goes from that death Mm -hmm. of my father which to me was a purely worldly tragedy to the death of my mother which i'll I'll try and touch on a little while and it goes through please do of um disbelief kind of anger um bafflement so that you you try and get your head around something that you've purely stumbled on. I was researching another book on vampires. Poltergeist keep coming up. I think I've got to read up. Yeah. So I read up on it. And yeah. I'm starting to get to grips with the kind of craziness that has a kind of crazy consistency as well. And it's summer 2013. I'm in the British Library in London. And I come out for lunch with a friend of mine uh, who I'll call uh, Paula, let's say. And mm-hmm. I've known her for eight years. We've been through some quite heavy weather. We've had, you know, a friend of ours had a lot of problems. We've been helping her out. And yeah, eight years on, there we are in the uh, little cafe talking for about an hour. Presently, I've got these poltergeists in my head and they're all sitting there on the library table across the road. And I say, have you ever come across poltergeists? And she goes white, she freezes up, she goes silent. And then she says, can we go somewhere more private? Uh, and we do. And for about an hour, she tells me a poltergeist has been following her from one house to another, to a workplace. It's the worst experience of her life. She's a bit over 40 now. Uh-huh. Uh, and not in eight years have I heard a whisper of this. You know, I, I would have gone my whole life. Uh, we could have died respectively at 80, yeah. 85 and not ever known. Uh, I've n- never known about this. So I, wow. uh, I go back to interesting kind of comparison here. I go back to Cardiff uh, and I'm talking to an old friend I've known for 12 years outside a, a bar one summer night. And I raise the subject with him and he just waits a beat and says, I've got one for you. So he tells me about a poltergeist happened when he was a teenager. His daughter, uh, his sister was a bit younger than him. She might have been the focus yeah. for it, but the house was generally haunted. They kind of learned to live mm-hmm. with it. His mother would sort of shout at the ghost occasionally, frighten it. Um, and I, I listened to all the poltergeist stuff he was telling me avidly. And then he tells me this. He says, when I was a very small child, I used to see a nice man in a football shirt and glasses at the top of the stairs in this same house. And he presently told his parents about this and they asked for the description exactly. He gave it. They said, well, that's Frank who used to own the house. He died before you were born. So here I've got a ghost. I've got some pretty damn wow. evidence of a kid that probably doesn't know what yeah. it is, has seen a ghost. Right. There's no other way he could have got this guy's picture. Uh, but I don't right. really listen. And I could certainly remember um, reading an uh, absolutely blindingly good poltergeist case from Britain. Uh, it's from Essex. It's called Paranormal Intruder. And some of your listeners might know, actually, now, Caroline Mitchell was purely a police officer, a successful police officer, when her life was turned upside down by a poltergeist. Pretty vicious one for a long time in the home of her, her partner, Neil, uh, four children, 
um, in Essex, and it wrecked their lives for you know well over a year. But the thing about this, she had the courage to settle this down, and nothing in her police career ever frightened her like this. She has three police witnesses who signed statements to say, yes, I saw liquid falling from midair. It wasn't coming from the ceiling. It was falling wow. from midair. I don't know what it was, but I saw it. Uh, oh my red, gosh! That was one of my early, you know, big poltergeist cases. In this century, it's in my country. Uh, it's people who are trained Jeez. to watch things very carefully and not their imaginations run away with them. Uh, but I didn't get ghosts at that point, and I wasn't listening to my yeah. in Cardiff properly about the ghosts. And it, it took me about a couple of years. But the fact of the matter was. Um, when you've got everybody telling you pretty much the same thing, you need to get to the bottom of it and pay attention. Yeah, I'm quoting and I'm paraphrasing um, a guy called Blackburn, who was the head of building in the Albert Hall when they called in a ghost hunter. There were so many ghost sightings. You thought, right, we've got to get to the bottom of this and find out. This was what started happening to me. And as I started talking about it and asking people, the stories kept coming and coming. And even better, I think, than this friend of mine who would go on to be a, a very hard-headed, hard-headed academic, very particular yeah. of worldly um, successful academic, but, you know, admitted to this story. Um, I, I was supervising a student on a ghost dissertation, so it's a bit of chance, real, maybe karma, and I raised the subject of, you ever come across poltergeist, you know, it might be relevant to this dissertation. Said, oh, no, no, no. Oh, hang on, though. Wait a minute. Then she tells me, this is a one-on-one meeting that we had for these things. Um, the family moved from the south of England um, to the north of England, bought a grand old Victorian house. And she would have been very young at that time, but she had three sisters in all. One of her sisters was about seven. And the house had been having low-level poltergeist activity, possibly because of the renovation. It was it was noticeable. It was odd, um, but it was fairly mild. I mean, the, you know, the parents were a gynecologist and a submarine captain, I think, uh, certainly something high up in the in the navy. He would come home. Yeah. She said, "Oh, look, see what I've done upstairs. It's much better upstairs." So he'd go up. There's a corridor, just one room either side. He goes in one room. All the little Russian dolls are on the mantelpiece nicely. All the better. Goes across to the next room, comes back. I mean, this is a matter of seconds. There's no one there. It's two yeah. Minutes. He's yeah. in the corridor, and all the Russian dolls are perfectly arranged across the doorway. <laughs> so this was a kind of oh stuff, you know, pretty mild. They would hear a baby crying up at this top floor. It's it's what we call the second floor, but it's the third level of the house. Uh, when there's okay. baby, there's a detached house. Anyway, one yeah. the daughter is there with the mother. There's just the two of them. And the seven-year-old sister of my student says, Mummy, um, who's that man on the balcony? There's a little inset balcony looking out on the road from the the first floor, as Americans would say, second floor. Um, and mother looks. Nobody there. Nobody in the balcony. There's nobody there, sweetie. No, no, no. There's a, a man with a white beard and a skinny suit reading a newspaper. Uh, so mother looks again. There's nobody there. It's very specific. You, you, bit of toing and froing, talks the girl out of it eventually and quiets her down. Now, a couple of weeks later, this is the 90s, by the way, so it's really before the age of the internet. Certainly no children could get hold of the internet uh, at that right. point, just to make yeah. that information transfer. Um, so they're at a local art gallery full of Victorian luminaries and they're walking around and suddenly the uh, daughter stops dead still, freezes, and that's him, that's him. Um, they look at the painting. It's a grand old Victorian luminary, white beard, skinny suit. Um, he's the architect of the house. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So It's undeniable. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. That's we so we had this um interesting story in our family. Um they my um my uh California mother, I have two moms in two different uh locations. Okay. So yeah. but but my um grandparents' house was across from her house in um eastern Washington. She lived in a very old house and she told me a story once and um of her mother when they first moved into this house, her mother was sorting everything in the the basement where the laundry things were, and all of a sudden she turned around and there was this man in this nice suit standing there. And she looked at him and he looked at her and crossed his arms and she said, This is my house now. Get out. And they went down to City Hall a few days later, and they asked about records about the house, and they had some information on it, and they pulled some old articles about the man that had built it. And he was the architect of the house, and it was him. It was wow. the same thing. It was yeah. him that stood there. And and yeah. her instinct was was like, I have to set a boundary. Get yeah. out of my house. This yeah. is my house. I'm alive. So. Some of these things happen, well, and Sarah, we can't. I wonder can't. how many there are in how many cities. And I mean, this has been my, That's what I wonder. my experience down to well, down to kind of this, you know, this very winter. But particularly in this past summer, I would simply yeah. go out for a lot to get out of the house in very nice weather. You spend too much time at computer writing, and you just wander around the park and you ask people, "Look, do you believe in ghosts?" And yeah, not only do they believe in ghosts, in about two thirds of cases, I'd say, and this is a fairly big sample. Um, mm-hmm. They have stories and they want to tell you these stories. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when I say we need to talk about ghosts, I think also people want to talk yeah. about ghosts, and they can tell. Mm-hmm. You know, their closest family. I mean, way back around the time my father died, my mother saw ghosts, and it's perfectly plausible. Uh, that she would. It was a care home for the elderly. Um, she oh, yeah. really liked the seeing of them. She wasn't fantasizing about it. When I'd started mm-hmm. approaching the poltergeists, uh, I, I talked to her again about it, and she told me things that were classic poltergeist stuff. She's boiling an egg in the kitchen on her own. She turns around, the egg has disappeared out of a pan of boiling water. You know, only a poltergeist could oh, do that. Oh, my gosh. Um, and she had oh, my gosh. Poltergeists. Um, so you've got, you know, a situation here where a family isn't really listening to its members. Um, One Mm -hmm. student told me something where it was only when they told me the story, went back to their parents for this ghost story about their dead grandmother, that they got all the details, which indicated that everybody in the family had things happening to them, but nobody admitted it until this very year when I got into wow. the story. So that's a yeah. that's one sign. I mean, that wasn't a huge problem, but I met a woman, and I only met her once a few years ago, uh, and I got onto this subject as I tended to by this stage. And she said, well, yeah, when she was a teenager, uh, a male friend of hers, who was about 14, uh, he died in a tragic accident, kind of out of the blue, I think electrical ah. fire, something like this. So no warning, mm-hmm. no preparation, nothing. And a couple of nights later, she's in her bedroom, obviously in quiet state, and he's there in the bedroom and he's looking at her as if to say, it's okay, it's all right. Now, this was a good thing, but she goes to her parents and tells them, as you might, and they pretty Mm -hmm. much tell her just to kind of shut up and not talk nonsense. So that's a pretty crying reason why we need to talk about this. And I think it's a kind of black comedy in a way that you've got all these people walking around, brushing ghost stories past each other and not knowing that. Mm-hmm. you're not nuts and you're not nuts and they won't think you're not right. you tell them i mean you know the most recent one was a friend uh neighbor 
um, here that I've known for over a year and, and got to know fairly well. And I just got onto the subject um, of saying what I was doing, that I was writing this book at the moment and so forth, and I was doing the podcast. And then said, well, have you ever you know, had any ghost experiences? And immediately wants to talk about this. Yeah, we grew up in a haunted house. I was terrified all the time. It was so haunted. We moved. We had to move purely for that reason. They moved into another haunted house. You know, I got that story in about three minutes. Uh, and this was just wow. what kept happening to me at Durham and all over the place once I started asking people. Um, I think a great one in terms of children again, how children, not just with poltergeists, but with ghosts, very young children, kind of six, seven, they're not frightened. They perhaps don't even know what it's No, called. they're not. And I, I no. have a very hard head. You're right. This, this is it. You know, they're the least frightened about ghosts on the whole. And mm-hmm. a very hard-headed student called Francis, um, went on to become a barrister and he'd got two, I think two historic poltergeist cases in his family. I mean, this was way back kind of uh, late 19th, early 20th century in an old Maltings. But the one that really kind of stuck with me was we're in this very noisy bar in Mayfair. We met up in London after he'd finished at Durham and we're talking about the subject again. And he recalled he was about 17. He was staying with his girlfriend and her family in a house outside Bath. I think it was a country house detached, probably quite old. And they were considered sort of, you know, young. Um, Maybe she was 16, he was 17. So they were in different bedrooms. He was in his bedroom on his own. And suddenly there's something that he cannot get asleep. Something doesn't want him there. He can't see it. He can't hear it. He can't smell anything. But there's something there. And he lies there wondering what the hell for a while with the light on. Then finally, for God's sake, get back to sleep. There's nothing here. So the moment he puts the light out, um, there we are in this bar in, in uh, Mayfield with a lot of noise going on. He shoves his face in mine and said it was exactly like that. And at this point, I got out of the, the room and went to my girlfriend's room. Yeah. So in the morning, he gets up fairly late, um, a bit, bit of a rough night. He goes and apologises to the mother and says, I think you've got a ghost in the house. And the mother says... Well, that's interesting because my daughter, who's six, came down before you and said, Mummy, who was that man outside my window last night? Question there you quite go. closely. Do you mean across the river? No, no, right yes. outside the window on the first floor. <sighs> and, and to me, the kind of gradation <sighs> here, the con- continuum yeah. where somebody who's 17 is very sure there's something in there and he's not remotely right. interested in ghosts. He's not remotely interested in fantasizing things. Uh, no. He's a sort of hard-headed rugby-playing guy, you know. Um, yeah. And the the daughter sees it, um, you know. I mean, who could possibly be there outside the window on the first floor? It, it's, which, wow. You know, the second floor to Americans. It, it's, that's the stuff of that's the stuff of a Stephen King novel right there. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of novels in waiting in these stories. There, there really are. Exactly. Uh, there really, are. Yeah. You reminded me, though, when my sister, um, so my uh, family house is in Northern California, and it was built by, if you know, the Donner Party that um, oh, survived the yeah. tragedy. And so one of the survivors, they um, built that house. And so um, we we knew the history loosely, but we're learning more and more about it as the years progress. And um, but my sister at the time was five and she was always playing alone with, um, you know, we call called an imaginary friend. um, But they had, you know, she would call her by a name and she would play these games Mm -hmm. with her. And she said, she's five like I am. And then as we were doing 
doing research later on. So then my sister grew up and she no longer had the imaginary friend, right? And then, um, but then we found out in subsequent years that the name that she called her imaginary friend, actually the family that had built the house had lost their five-year-old daughter in the yard she'd passed away. They'd built a swing set and she died on it. Mm -hmm. So it was definitely her that my sister was playing with and she wasn't afraid. It was the same thing. It was like curious and excited to have this little playmate. And then when she turned six or seven, that playmate just kind of disappeared. And it's interesting to me. It feels like people are okay talking about it. It has less stigma maybe than it did even 10 years ago. Less less stigma now than... Than maybe like 10 years ago or even, you know, five years ago. It depends who you're talking to. But I think in some ways it's got worse than than it was in the 17th century or the early 18th century. And yeah, I I think in some ways it's got worse. And yet the the case you you talk about with your uh, daughter, you know, that, yeah, children are just having another friend and they don't have Mm -hmm. preconceptions uh, about this one way or the other, perhaps. And it reminds me uh, another case which shows you how quickly you could get a story when I was coming back quite late at night from Barcelona after a holiday uh, just in 2019 before things shut down. And I was waiting for quite a long time. Uh, plane was slow boarding and so on. I was in the cafe, got talking to a young woman who'd been touring around Spain. And we talked about this and that. She was taking photographs around Spain, wanted to be a photographer. Um, she was 19. And she um, listened to me talking to her about my books and seemed very polite and quiet. And I thought she probably thinks this person's quite mad talking about ghosts and poltergeists. And then when I finished, she pipes up and says, and we've been talking for just about more than five minutes now, not much more than that. So she said, well, that's interesting because when I was a little girl, an old lady used to come and read to me in bed last night, a uh, bed each night. Oh and my gosh. it was only when I could talk about it that I asked my uncle and my mother and they said, well, was this her? pointed to a photograph and Esme said, yeah, that was her. Uh, and they said, well, that was your grandmother who died before you were born. Uh, so wow. this was uh, oh, that's perfectly amazing. nice, ordinary, nightly experience for her. And obviously yeah. is exactly what you'd expect a grandmother to do if they didn't yeah. get the chance to see their grandchild. Absolutely. And um, it, it shows you that people don't change. Sometimes they don't change and it's bad because then you've got poltergeists. Um, sometimes they don't change and they're just they're just who they were, or perhaps they're even more than who they were if they yeah. unfortunately died, you know, slowly with difficulty. They they become their real old old self um, exactly. after, after they've died. Exactly. And, you know, I I don't want to um, forget to leave space here because we have something in common. I'm so sorry for the loss of your mother, um, you. but you had, um, I think we both lost a parent around the same period of time. Mine was yeah. my father, my That's beloved right. father, yeah. and yours was your um, beloved mother. And I wondered um, if you would feel comfortable sharing the story of um, that loss and and what happened, the surprising thing that happened afterwards? Yeah, yeah. It, um, it was quite a long way into the pandemic, relatively. So we thought we were getting away with it. But in July 2020, when she'd been living in the same house for about 50 years, she had a bad fall. She just couldn't look after herself at home anymore. Uh, she was 85. Mm. And so she was taken into a care home. 
Mm-hmm. And yeah. she was fine for uh, quite a few weeks, but I think it would have been late November that the virus started going around the care home. Um, my uh, mother had some degree of um, uh, Alzheimer's, a small amount. And it's difficult to get, you know, a lot of the elderly people there to follow precautions and remember about them. Anyway, for whatever mm-hmm. reason, um, she contracted it. She she was fighting away pretty well for a while. Um, um, but slowly uh, she she slid and slid and she found a great burst of energy. Um, I don't know, at some point about mid-December or late December um, yeah. when she she was quite quiet on the phone, but she suddenly sort of burst out, um, I love you dearly. And this mm. is about the last thing I can remember her saying. Um, uh, and then she uh, sort of lapsed into, it was a what became a thing later for me. It was terrible simply terrible when it happened but afterwards when she was refusing to eat refusing to drink um we were going through these agonizing uh calls where me and my brother would be on the phone um trying to get her to take minute amounts of liquid minute amounts of food um Uh. and carers were heroic people um they were almost entirely women a great number of them were the kind of people who've since been abused disgustingly uh, by a racist government and it's racist. Oh, that's awful. Since Brexit. And, they're, and, and they're the heroes. They're the true heroes, well, aren't they, you, of I the pandemic? Remember, sometimes yeah. just one word they said, and it would yes. simply be my yeah. mother's name. I can still hear a Filipino nurse saying, Joan, uh, and I can hear uh, a universe of care in this woman's, yes. in this woman's uh, voice. Um, exactly. These people did, you know, dangerous, difficult jobs at risk yes. of catching the virus for exactly. very, very long way in appalling conditions, unprecedented conditions. Yeah. What I think I learned in the end afterwards, um, after the kind of initial trauma had passed, was that we need to learn something about how people die, actually. Yeah, and if we are saying actually. that they lose all these senses progressively, we may be wrong. And not yeah. only that, when they're refusing to eat and drink with yeah. our fetish about keeping people alive against all odds, against yeah. all kind of quality of life, these people, there's evidence that Monroe, for example, when he was in another dimension, he met a boy who was in a coma and was asking him, where do I go? Where do I go? Monroe's saying, go over, go over now. Um, yeah. He read about this boy's coma in the paper a little while later. And I think this was probably happening to my mother. And we were just simply yeah. kind of yanking her back to a world where she didn't yeah. belong anymore. There were no vaccines at this point in Britain. So she was probably right. in a pretty terrible state. She was, she was pretty tough. Yeah. But in the end, you know, we, we slowly had to accept that we're in this weird state of kind of semi-normality where we keep having conversations with somebody who can't respond to us. Yeah. You can just kind of hear their breath and the kind of the texture of how they listen, perhaps. But you're, you're really very unsure about everything. And it was late on uh, the night of the 10th of January um, that I was talking to her on the phone. And again, it almost seems normal now. You know, there's no reply. You you talk, you you try and be normal. You you talk about her grandchildren. Um yeah. you you read to her. And I read um passage from Dandelion Wine that I was particularly fond of at the time, and which kind of applied to this sense of an old person remembering their youth. Um yeah. and I don't know why, but I, I finally said to her at the end of the call for the first time, goodbye. Yeah. Goodbye twice. And it could have been a pure coincidence, but about half an hour later, I got the call that she died. Um, 
So we were all in a state of utter disbelief, utter trauma. Yeah. You have to bear in mind that, you know, her yeah. great her um her aunt, yeah, her aunt lived to be ninety-seven, her grandmother wow. lived to be hundred and so on. Um yeah. and I think she'd still be with us now. Yeah. Um but it was exactly what well, pretty much exactly a week later I woke up in my house on Sunday morning and the house is detached and the windows were all shut, it being January, and I've never in my 20 years in the house ever smelled anyone's cooking unless it's the summer and you know your windows open there's barbecues going so I was lying there waking up slowly blinking and suddenly I could smell for about a minute I would say the exact smell of Sunday roast as it was cooked by her ah ah that's (laughs) beautiful in our little house uh in St Albans time and time Uh, again in our childhood and our teens and I've not even thought about that smell I don't know if you know this but you can't actually remember a smell you can remember the effect a smell had on you it's too primal to actually remember the smell um which is why I I didn't know that you get it you know right so you you say you smell suntan cream you think holidays um you know yeah whatever it might be and this is actually very very common um you're probably as likely or more likely to smell a ghost uh, than you are to see one. I know uh-huh. someone whose father died young, um, yeah. at 47. He haunts the house. Um, and in fact, when we talk about the imaginary friend, he's almost certainly playing with his granddaughter, who he never uh-huh. met. Uh, you wow. can see her laughing at somebody who's not there. Her eyes focus, uh, yeah. which for a child of less than two, you know, it's odd if they're not looking at something. Yeah. Uh, and, and so on. She's looking up at somebody who looks like the size of an adult and so on. Now, you 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 smell his insulin because he was diabetic. You smell yeah. that around the house. He's been yeah. dead about five years. You, 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 there's no insulin there anymore. Uh, mm-hmm. You smell live tobacco smoke. And all the stuff about imagining and hallucination and hoaxes I don't really know what that means. I don't see how you can hallucinate the smell of live tobacco smoke. We'd have a lot of weird fire alarms if that was possible. (laughs) I agree. Um, I agree. You you Uh, could not hoax it. You you know, I'll give you all the money in the world to hoax that. You would not be able to do it. If there is no smoke, you will not smell the smoke. So that was the the perfect way to say goodbye. Yeah, we were. It was. My father, my brother. It was what she loved doing. Um, so that was that was a very different experience to that's beautiful uh, to my father dying. Yeah, uh, that's ab- that's absolutely beautiful. It's a beautiful bookend to your father dying, and what a beautiful gift. Uh, you know, I was waiting with bated breath for my dad to you know have some indication that he came back to visit me after he passed because we were extremely yeah. close, and um, we did have um, it was before he passed. And what you were talking yeah. about is this stage where. I think what it was, what we experienced was that he was saddling um, this life, this earthly body and what his meat suit was giving out and then his, um, what was going to happen next. And my dad was the ultimate overachiever, you know, with two PhDs and just really brilliant man. And so my, uh, my, uh, my eldest, my, um, my eldest, my daughter, Nora came from Colorado to be with me, um, when we said goodbye to, um, grandpa. And the so we went to the house, the family house, but we weren't staying there because it was pretty, uh, you know, it was time of COVID, pretty uh, full okay. with the care, you know, my mother and my sister who were taking yeah. primary care of my dad. So we were staying a little elsewhere, but we got to come in and 
and and spend time um, when we came into town together, and we held my dad's hand, and my my daughter Nora's um, held um, his left hand, which was on the same side as he he was he's completely blind, but he had yeah. a. On the right side, he could see shapes a little bit. Exactly. So I was on his right side, and I was yeah. um, holding his hand, and Nora's on the left side where he's completely blind. So then that evening, we went back to our hotel, and I woke up at 4 a.m. from a dream that I was having. And my dad was like, I'm pissed, Jen. I'm pissed. And I woke up just tears streaming down my face, and it felt like a visitation. I was really talking to my mm-hmm. dad. So mm-hmm. I went back to sleep, and I said, what are you mad about, Dad? And he said, I wanted more time. I wanted more goddamn time. And I was afraid I woke up Nora because I was tossing and turning. Well, Nora woke up that morning and said, Mom, I was afraid I woke you up at 4 a.m. because I had a dream about Grandpa and it felt like a visitation. And we were in a space where we were in outer space and we were, um, you know, because Nora has electrical engineering degree, even though they're an artist. and, And they were... And and yeah. my dad, her grandpa said, help me make sense of it. What what happens next? Help me to basically cram for what happens in the great beyond. So it was all like theoretical math and it was shapes and, and numbers and sacred geometry, which is totally right. Nora's thing, right? So yeah. it was beautiful because we got to have this dual visitation. And then the next day it was um, his favorite uh, Shakespeare play was uh, Julius Caesar. And he always said, it's the Ides of March. It was like a holiday for him in a a weird sense. So it was the Ides of March and he blew away on the wind of the Ides of March and it was beautiful. But um, we had that moment where we got to actually, I feel like we got to observe him, uh, his soul being in both places at the same time. And and it was really, it was sacred space and we were really lucky for it. So mm-hmm. I think that was all the visitation I got for a while. And then when you were saying about scent, he was a diabetic his whole life since he was oh, 10. Of course. Yeah. 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 So at that smell mm-hmm. of insulin, that was the only scent I've gotten from my dad since then. I've had some silly things with like lights blinking by where I put That's his me. picture in the kitchen. Yeah. But, but, but yeah. He, he smelled the insulin after, after he uh-huh. passed away. Yeah, yeah, and he was never like he was at our house, but it was like years before the time of COVID that he was here visiting because it was really hard for him to travel. We're in Seattle; yeah. he's in Northern California, and yeah. he, um, you know, is blind, so it was really difficult to travel. So there was yeah. no way that that, that was and, definitely and, my dad. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. I, I, you know, it took me a while to get my head around, but a lot of people have reported the smell thing to me, and a big range yeah. of them as well, and. It can be in a completely different place to where the person lived and where they died. Yeah. And when, yeah. when when you had that, you know, both of you got the the kind of dream vision. Was was he unable to speak at that point, or he he was not. He was um, in um, at the house in real life. He mm. was he was able to speak, but he was definitely um, existing in another place. There were two mm-hmm. things happening at once with my dad. He was yeah. still, he was registering that Nora and I were there to visit and he would have moments of coherence in this world. Yeah. And he would go, because it's the Riley thing where my maiden name is Riley. So we call it the Riley thing. Whenever someone comes to town, 
what are you going to eat? What are you going to watch on TV? So he was like, I've been in bed all day. Nora's here. Jen's here. What did we eat for food? You know, what are we going to watch? And he was making these jokes. And then he would have these moments where it was all kind of blank, but he was gesturing far and wide, these strange gestures. And he would sometimes call out to his parents who had passed and a dog of ours, Artemis, that had passed decades ago. And so when we had these dual dreams, Nora said when she woke up and told me about it over breakfast, she said, now I understand what he was gesturing at. He, it all makes sense because we were looking, we were in space and he was like, teach me about the theoretical math that I need to know to exist in this next plane, Nora, because you're the, you're the smart one in the family and you know, you love theoretical math. So he was able to, to talk still a little bit, but then Mm -hmm. in the dream, it was amazing because he was able to communicate dually, right? His, his soul was saying, I can multitask, which it totally was that night. So, so I, I felt like we were really lucky to have that experience. You know, I, I think I'll, the, the big lesson out of this is that traditional religion, not all of it, but, you know, a lot of traditional Christianity isn't very good with the fact that there's really quite a porous divide. Uh, there's quite a blurred period where people are kind of wavering back and forwards. Yeah. Um, and the fact that, of course, they do cross back and forwards in the form of ghosts, poltergeists, yeah. uh, problematic spirits. But you also reminded me of a of a case where a friend of mine, who again would never have told me this story if I hadn't been raising the subject all the time at the university, but she um, lived in the countryside and it was a place where you knew every bit of land intimately. And one morning she came down to breakfast and she and her mother kind of almost at the same time, I think, said, you'll never guess what I dreamed. And they had a very vivid dream, not like a normal dream about this exact bit of land um, she, the daughter, as my friend, imagined a car accident at this spot, and her mother, being a fair bit older, imagined an accident with a horse and cart, uh, and it was that sort of place, which was quite traditional. You know, you would have had those not long ago. Yeah. Um, and that afternoon, there was a car accident exactly at that spot, and people would wow. believe one person was was killed, and it's it's that shared, you know, yeah. thing. Two different it's, people, slightly it, different versions, but it but, completely you know, is. Okay, Dr. Sugg, I have a guest for you to be on your podcast because there's a couple in Colorado who wrote a book about consciousness in a nutshell. And it's a new book, but they talk about things like how do we explain, um, you know, things like that, like precognition. And they've gone into a deep dive about, you know, going back to Joseph Campbell and further back. But, you know, we got, we had this juicy conversation that will air right before your um, conversation with us oh, at Curious Cat. And they talk yeah. about that. It's like, is consciousness yeah. like a, the cloud where we can dip in and see what's happening? There's a collective consciousness there. And yeah. if we're in the right state yeah. of mind, we can download some future information, which would yeah. be great for people to win the lottery or something. I don't know. Uh, yeah. That's, that doesn't seem to work, does it? I think reality and time uh, are a lot stranger than we think. I do it, too. It's only the other day that I was reading the second book by Eben Alexander, where he cites a lot of people's other other people's experiences, a bit like his. And one was the film critic Roger Ebert just before he died. Um, yeah. And with this sense of incredible kind of conviction and force, um, just shortly before he died, he, he looked up at his wife and said, it's all a tremendous hoax. 
Uh, <gasps> I think it was the Pope was the word that. And this oh. fits so very clearly what it does. Um, what Robert Monroe says about time and space as we know it. And the most skeptical exactly. person I know, or one of the most skeptical people I know, a very scientific background, you'll talk to him about time slips and anomalies in time, and yeah. he'll listen and he'll nod and he'll say, "Yeah, time is really odd." <laughs> so I think, yeah, there's a lot of oddities sitting there, you know, in quantum physics, in all this dark matter, and and there's big research opportunities waiting to happen if you can just stop being embarrassed, you know, and stop thinking exactly. you're exactly. I agree. Oh, well, thank you for sharing time with us on Curious Cat. Promise you'll come back. I'd love to. I'd love to. Oh, that'd be wonderful. You have an open invitation. And I will put the links to um, your podcast and all of your books on Amazon uh, in the show notes. So nobody, and then um, some of the other books that we've referenced as well. But thank you so much for being here. And um, I hope you have a wonderful um, evening there. I guess it's evening in. It is. It's it's deep winter just now, but yeah, I'll deep light up winter. the fire later. Yeah. Oh, oh, thank you so much, Dr. Sugg, and hope to talk soon. Thank you for listening to Curious Cat. If you like the content, stories, and information, I'd be grateful if you could like and review us on your favorite streaming service. It'll help others find us as well. Huge gratitude for my art director and audio engineer. If you're in need of those services, please find their links in the show notes. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Until next time, stay curious. I love you. Thank you.